Grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text for our sermon is 1 Samuel chapter 20 verses 1 through 34. Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, Whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. So David said, Look, tomorrow is the new moon feast and I'm supposed to dine with the king, but let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says, Very well then, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said. If I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? David asked, Who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Come, Jonathan said. Let's go out into the field. So they went there together. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. If he's favorably disposed towards you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness, like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon feast. You will be dismissed because your seat will be empty. The day after tomorrow, towards evening, go to the place where you hid when this trouble began and wait by the stone Ezel. I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I were shooting at a target. Then I will send a boy and say, Go find the arrows. If I say to him, Look, the arrows are on this side of you. Bring them here. Then come, because as surely as the Lord lives, you are safe. There is no danger. But if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go because the Lord has sent you away. And about the matter you and I discussed, remember, the Lord is witness between you and me forever. So David hid in the field. And when the new moon feast came, the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place by the wall opposite Jonathan and Abner sat next to Saul. But David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he is unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son Jonathan, 
Why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. That is why he has not come to the king's table. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. On the second day of the feast, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. This is the word of our Lord. Generally, the longer the text, the longer my sermon is. And this is why we're providing lunch today. I'm kidding about that. Today's text shows true friendship, doesn't it? Jonathan almost got killed looking out for his friend. How would you define a friend? What makes the criteria for you that they become your friend? We tend to base it on the benefits we get. Common interest, I can trust them, they do things to help me out. And and prayerfully, we return the favor so that they consider us a friend. One of the Hebrew words for love, chesed, means undeserved kindness. And a true friend will show us undeserved kindness even on those times when we're having a bad day and, and sinfully take it out on our friend. See, David, this is the guy who killed Goliath, who was blaspheming God and the people of Israel. David was 14 when he did that. And shortly before then, God had sent Samuel to anoint David to be king. Now, Saul was already king at this time, but Saul had turned his back on the Lord, had rejected the Lord. So God anointed David to be his successor. But David, knowing he was next in line to be king, never tried to kill Saul or take retribution. Saul eventually figures out that everything David does, God blesses, and everything Saul does, the Lord turns to manure in Saul's hands. So he figures out that David is going to replace him. God has chosen him and he hates him. But when David killed Goliath, he's brought into Saul's house and and he's brought up getting to understand the politics of what's going on and everything in the kingdom. And he basically becomes a general and this is where Saul can see that God is blessing David. Back to David's friendship with Jonathan. Look at what Jonathan did and the fact that he was willing to go to such extents. Even let's go out of town here so that we can talk and be sure nobody's overhearing a plan I have that if my father is going to kill you, your life will be safe. Friendship there showed unfailing kindness. And that today we see in our sermon text. Friendship shows unfailing kindness. Unfailing kindness between Jonathan and David because... Jonathan, when he figured out when his dad tried to kill him, he truly knew David was in mortal peril and he warned him. And, you know, the outcome of all of this is that when uh, Saul ultimately he's wounded in battle and doesn't want to die at the hands of a Philistine. So he falls on his own sword and Jonathan is killed in that battle. David becomes king. And David finds out that Jonathan had a son who, uh, when that battle was happening and and Jonathan's family was evacuating the palace, that this child was dropped and was crippled. 
So David raises up Jonathan's son as his own and he lives with David. There's true friendship showing undeserved kindness to each other. This long text was all about warning a friend when there was danger. First, that person had to be convinced that there was the danger. Now, this is Friendship Sunday. How often are we afraid to warn a friend that they are in danger? Because God says you have to be perfectly holy in order to be saved. But if we read what God says, we are not holy in and of ourselves, and we're in danger. And so let me tell you about the sinner's greatest friend. God, in his committed love, undeserved kindness for us, seeing we're stuck in our sin. If we think we can do good things and act holy enough to be saved, we're denying God's grace and we're only earning more damnation. We are stuck in the mud pit and the manure of our sin and we can't get out. It's not a matter of us acting holiness. And in fact, lots of times when we invite friends to come to church, they're afraid to come because they don't want to deal with a bunch of Pharisees looking down their nose at them and pretending to be holier than thou. But God, God became a man. He took on your and my human flesh so that he could live perfectly in your place. God was perfectly holy for you. Every minute of every hour of every day. He was tempted to sin in every way you and I are, but he never did sin because he's God and he did not have the sinful nature you and I have. So he has credited you with his perfect holiness. And what a friend. We're saved, right? No, not yet. The problem is we still have done the crime and the time is hell. So he's already credited us with his holiness, but he's got to remove the crime. And the way he does it, as he said uh, in the gospel lesson, that no greater love is this, that, that you lay down your life for your friends. You and I had a death sentence, a sentence of hell. And Jesus bore the punishment for us. This is why we get away scot-free. The sinner's greatest friend said, nope. I'm going to take that punishment for you. And it defies logic. It, it, it's a wonderful miracle that because he's true God, he can suffer the abandonment of God, which is hell, in all eternity and get it done in three hours time. Jesus is the sinner's greatest friend. And he has not only credited you with his holiness, but he's borne the punishment for your and my unholiness. It's amazing to think the sins we commit tomorrow, the punishment was already paid for 2,000 years ago. And so we don't come across people as if you have to act holy in order to be saved. No, it's God's holiness that saves us. And in fact, once we know we're saved, knowing what a friend we have in Jesus, knowing what a savior we have in Jesus, we struggle against our sin, not in order to earn forgiveness and salvation, but in order to thank our dearest friend for what he's given. Back to Jonathan and David. Jonathan, recognizing David was in mortal peril, did, in fact, warn him. He shot the arrow past and said, the arrows are past you. So David would know. What kind of a friend, if they knew somebody had a disease like cancer and they were unaware of it, would keep their mouth shut? What kind of a friend, knowing that their friend had cancer and they had the cure, would not tell them, let me cure you here and now? And yet, because of the pressures of the devil, we are afraid to tell a friend, you are in immortal peril. You do not know your Savior. And because of that, 
You are destined for hell. There's only one way to avoid hell, and that is Jesus. We're afraid they'll be mad. We're afraid they'll look at us as being holier than thou. But as a true friend, we will point out, you are in danger. You've got to be holy to get to heaven. And, and none of us are holy but the God-man. And so as a true friend, we'll point to them the cure to their disease. God has done it all. Simply come and hear his word and he will heal you. Now, lots of times people think that Christianity, or, or they'll just say religion in general, is fairy tales that you tell to children so that they can cope with death. What kind of a friend is only there for you at the last minute when you desperately need him the most? That's still a friend, but that wouldn't be a really good friend, would it? See, that's the thing. We have a wonderful message to tell. It's not just about what happens when we die, that we make sure we end up in paradise because of the work of Christ. See, the thing is, is Jesus Christ is your friend. He's ruling over all creation for you now. And how wonderful it is to be able to turn to a friend who's going through hard times and say, God is actually ruling in creation to use this for your good. God has a plan for this. God has your life mapped out and he's working for you to keep bring you to salvation and keep you in it. And so God is feeding you daily. It's not just about what happens when we die. It's about every day having Jesus, your best friend, as your good shepherd as well. So we've covered that so far, friendship, mortal peril and everything. Let me talk to you about how a friend works in everyday life in, within our own Christian community. I went to our district convention list last week. The lay delegate that was there was a friend of mine, and it was so good to get to see him again. You see, I, I got to know him when I was going to Martin Luther College, our pre-seminary. I averaged about 19, 20 credit hours a semester in language. Almost all my classes were language or theology. They wanted me to go for four years because I didn't have all the language, but having been an engineering student, I had all the prerequisites out of the way. So I really doubled up and got it done in three. But when we had shorter breaks or when we had breaks in general, I got to admit to you, I was exhausted. If we had a two-week break, I would drive home. It would take two days to get home, two days to get back. So if it was like a week-long break, it wasn't worth it to go home. Well, this friend of mine who lived in Sioux City, Iowa, and lots of times I'd drop him off when I was going home, invites me one time to stay at his family's house with him over a shorter break. And I was exhausted. I slept in their house on the average 12 to 14 hours a day. Now, if I were me and somebody did this, I would be like, what a lazy bum. But my friend had explained to his parents the course load I carried, and they became true brothers and sisters in Christ to me. They were not judgmental. They actually set up a bed in their basement, my little cave, where I could get two or three days worth of rest to battle through the rest of the semester. But that wasn't the only kindness that they showed me. Besides not being judgmental like that, I got the privilege of sharing with my friend what I've waited for years to tell him. One time I would talk with him, this is my friend's dad, one time I was talking with him, he teaches Sunday school and he was telling me how he has kids memorize hymns out of the hymnal. And I remember at the time thinking, what a terrible thing to do, we make kids memorize enough. But through the years I learned, like when I dealt with people who have Alzheimer's and they reach that point of dementia where they're no longer conscious, when you say the old familiar, when you sing those known hymns like Amazing Grace, the pilot light comes on. You can see in their eyes there's somebody there. 
And so in catechism, I started doing some of this with my kids. And I set up PowerPoint slides when I teach catechism. And when I had a larger group of kids, I would put in just a few lines of the stanza, of a stanza that, that had a hymn that pertained to the lesson. So when you change slides to the next topic, suddenly you'd get a bum, 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 and the kids would start singing it. It helped drill home to them why we sing those hymns where we're getting to sing the word of God and encourage each other. So I got to tell my friend, you planted a seed in that conversation that many, many people have benefited from now. But then the greatest benefit I got out of that friendship as a brother in Christ. My mom and dad were Christians, so please don't take me as bashing them. But we had no devotional life in the home. And every time I was at my friend's house, Ken and his wife, they, at supper time, they always got out meditations and they read them. It took three minutes. Sometimes they would discuss them. I said, Ken, God used you to plant a seed in me that my parents, you know, they weren't perfect. They would forgot to plant. So now I said, my kids are reaping benefits that you, God used you to plant in my heart because I sit with my kids and I read the Bible history at dinner time or a devotion with them. I said, I also figured out what a wonderful blessing you were, you, you were teaching your family because when I take kids through catechism, they're given homework. Their parents are supposed to read them particular assigned devotions in hopes of planting the seed in that family. So I said to my friend, God used you greatly. We were already brothers in Christ. But there's been many seeds that God used you to plant in my life that others that then continue to get passed on with each other. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jonathan and David were true friends and they showed unfailing kindness to each other as God gave them the opportunity. Today we see friendship shows unfailing kindness. It begins by being willing to speak up and warn a person of the mortal peril, the big disease they have is original sin, so that we can show them their Savior and tell them of the best friend of all sinners, Jesus Christ. And then we get to show them how Christ is ruling every day in their life. And that friendship, that unfailing kindness, plants seeds that like a rippling wave spreads on and God uses it to show others His wonderful love every day in our lives. Amen. This morning we conclude our sermon using a prayer out of There's a Prayer for That, which is available at Northwestern Publishing House. Good shepherd, friend of sinners, your heart of compassion led you to reach out to the lost and the wandering. You know the dear people in our lives who are not following you. Our heart longs for them to know the joy and peace that comes from hearing your voice and following where you lead. According to your gracious will, give us openings to share the saving gospel with them. Keep us from being a stumbling block to them. Prepare us to always be ready to share with them the reason for the hope that we have. Amen.